Um, I just want to start by saying that, um, unlike Horatio Spafford, um, I have never really personally uh, suffered uh, very much. Um, we're going to talk a lot about suffering. We're going to think a bit, a bit of the intellectual arguments, but also think through pastorally uh, the problem. And um, I guess I am very aware that some of you probably, well, almost certainly, will know the topic uh, in a more personal way than I do. And uh, I just want to say that because if at any point I um, uh, talk uh, unkindly or disrespectfully about your suffering, if I diminish it in any way, it is not my intention, and I, I want to say sorry for it before I say it. Um, I think for someone who's never really encountered it in, in the sort of nitty, nitty and gritty of life, maybe I will talk glibly about it, and I, and I don't want to. Uh, broadly, though, I want to try and do two things, and um, it's the two reasons why I, I'm a Christian um, tonight. I think we're going to try and cover two areas. I think Christianity has got some good intellectual answers to the biggest questions of life. And at the same time, I think it's also uh, existentially satisfying. What do I mean by that? I mean that being a Christian is good. It works. It feels right. I think it makes sense of life better than any other worldview that I've encountered. So two big, um, two big aims when it comes to the question of suffering... I think there are some good intellectual answers that we'll think about, but also, existentially, I think Christianity has got some great answers. Um, this is, a, this is a, just a bit of background. This is a slide, uh, a photograph that I took in central Sierra Leone about 18 months ago. This is an Ebola uh, graveyard. Uh, in December of 2014, this was just a field, just a farmer's field. Um, that was December. Four months later, there were 800 bodies in the grounds, uh, just from one area that died of Ebola. Just note the gravestones, if you can call them that. Um, uh, Ramatu Jallo is a day old. Um, Mayate is a month old. Um, Baby Jallo in the background, again, is a day old. Um, this is as close as I've come to really witnessing big, bad awful suffering, where every day people would pour into our treatment centre. There was nothing we could do, and, um, and, they, and, they, would, and they would perish. And, um, and so that's kind of my background and where I'm coming from. Let's um, think about how we're going to approach this problem. I think we're going to try and do it in four ways. When it comes to suffering, um, here, are my, here are my four points I want to make. The first one, I think, is as Christians, we have to admit when it comes to the problem of suffering, that we do have a problem. That the answers are not easy. That this is a real issue for us as Christians. But, having said that, I think we also need to realise that non-believers, people that don't call themselves Christians, have a bigger problem than we do. Despite the problem that we have, I think there are some good intellectual answers, but I think there are some better existential ones. That's what we're going to do to, tonight. We're going to try and trace those four things. So let's start, I think, as a Christian, uh, suffering is a problem. Okay? The reason why there are so many sessions like this one in churches throughout the country all the time, is not just because this is a nice topic to think about, it's not, but it's because it's a genuine question that everyone asks. Wherever you stand on God, whatever your opinion of Christianity, suffering is a common denominator for all of human existence in one form or another. And interestingly, depending on where you go in the world, I think the questions do take many forms. See, every person 
who has ever lived, I'm sure, has asked the question, why? Dan started it this morning in his sermon. I thought he was going to steal my uh, thunder. But he, I think we've all asked that. Why suffering? Why does it exist? What is it for? How is it fair? Why does it seem so indiscriminate? Why does it make us ask the question, why? So you only have to spend a few minutes looking at the headlines. Famine in Ethiopia, in Darfur, in Malawi, that destroys a generation. A genocide in Rwanda, in Nazi Germany, in the Balkans, in Cambodia, in Iraq and Syria that sees the annihilation of a people group. An earthquake in Haiti, in the Philippines, in Nepal that wipes out a country's infrastructure. The ache of childlessness, the reality of homelessness, of mental illness, of growing old alone, of unemployment, of divorce, of chronic disease, of childhood disability, of redundancy, of bullying, of Alzheimer's or cancer or Parkinson's. See, the list could go on and on and on, couldn't it? Suffering is omnipresent. No one can get away from it. It is unavoidable. And it does appear totally indiscriminate. Right now, I'm sure you all have your own personal stories that you could bring to mind. I could tell you about Joseph. Joseph was a 32-year-old man from central Sierra Leone who was admitted to my Ebola ward with his two little daughters, three and five years old. The same ward where a week earlier his mother and his wife both died of the same virus. And he lies there and watches the only two people he has left in the world die too. He then lies next to their lifeless bodies for hours before they're taken away. They're zipped in two little body bags and buried in the ground miles from their village. There are no mourners at their funeral and there is a piece of cardboard on a stick for a gravestone. And as a Christian, I find stories like that very troubling. Not just troubling actually, but experiences like that. Going back into the same Ebola tent the day after and holding the hand of a father who has lost everything. You see, that is potentially faith shattering. As Christians, we have a problem. Because we open our Bibles and we're told that the God that we believe in is good and kind. That he is loving and generous. We're also told that he is in charge of the world that he has made. That he knows about everything that is happening. And I say, why? Why both the little girls? Surely you could have just left him one. Why Haiti, the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, did they really deserve an earthquake as well? Why another miscarriage? Weren't the first two enough? See, suffering has been described as the great Achilles heel to belief in a personal and powerful God. And and here is why. Here's how the, the dilemma is put. If God is God, he cannot be good. If God is good, he cannot be God. See, namely, if God is God, if if he sees everything, if he's in charge of everything, if he's got power to do whatever he wants, if God is God, and he sees all the suffering and yet he does not do anything about it, then a God like that cannot be good. For if he was, surely he would come and do something about it. And then the second half, if God was good, if he loved people and cared for their well-being, well then he can't really be God. He must not really know what's happening or have any power to stop it because he would otherwise be right down here in an instant to sort it out, wouldn't he? See, the problem that Christians have is that this is exactly 
what the Bible says God is like. It says that God is God, that he is in charge, that he does know about the world and its condition, and that he is powerful to change things, but also that he's good, that he does love people, that he cares about us and for us. He is good and he is God. But you look at the world and the terrible things that are happening, and those two points don't seem to fit together, do they? If God is God, he cannot be good. And if he is good, then he cannot be God. And so the conclusion is drawn, then, that this God, of which the Bible speaks, cannot exist. Within this inconsistent idea, there is no space for the God of the Bible as he reveals himself. Theologians and philosophers have called it the inconsistent triad. He cannot be all-knowing, all-powerful and all-loving in a world where so much pain persists. Suffering and evil in the world show that the Christian God cannot be real. That's the contention. And before we're too quick to rush and answer the question, because of course we will, but before we do, I think it would serve as well just to stay there for a minute. Because for me, standing in a tent next to Joseph, genuinely, I asked a real question. What are you doing? See, this feels cruel and needless, and I want it to stop. Interestingly, people in my team who weren't Christians asked the question of me. And there were times when I genuinely struggled to answer the question. People became very angry with me very quickly for suggesting that I could believe in the God of the Bible in the middle of what we were seeing. And actually, in terms of the individual level, I don't think we always can answer the question, can we? Sometimes we will just have to say, I don't know. I don't know why God has ordained that. See, the first thing I think we need to do when it comes to suffering is admit that as Christian believers we do have a problem. Now, I want to suggest that whilst the question is a hard one, and whilst I may not fully understand the depth of the topic and still question the individual whys, I actually want to suggest that drawing the conclusion of God's non-existence from the suffering that we see in the world is ultimately not correct. It is a misstep in logic. And I want to say that actually getting rid of God makes the question even harder to answer, not easier. See, whilst suffering is difficult for the Christian... I think it's more difficult for the non-believer. Let me explain. It's been said that Western secular thought sees the universe as essentially natural. So the only stuff that exists is the stuff you can see. There is only nature, nothing more. And so suffering ultimately is not the result of sin or a cosmic battle between the gods or due to any other higher force that determines our destiny, like a lot of traditional cultures will teach. Suffering is just part of the natural world. It's part of what happens It's how we got here. Our society, in many ways, sees suffering as simply an accident. I think that view is fairly common, isn't it? So, you know, pick a medical example. Lung cancer could be attributable to all the smoking the person may have done. But there are plenty of smokers who don't get lung cancer, so why have I got it? Well, I just got an unlucky set of genes, and the roll of life's dice only gave me a one and not a six. Why here in sunny, leafy East Oxford have we not been swept away by the hurricane or the typhoon or the earthquake? Well, the great physical forces at work in the world are not focused around the Thames Valley. We're lucky enough to be born here and not there. And those people are just unlucky enough to be born there and not here. And there's no reason for it. It's just what happens. It's just the way the world is. It is just the way an impersonal world ruled by chance works. It's not right or wrong. It just is. 
In his book, The River Out of Eden, Dawkins says this. Again, Dan alluded to it this morning. Just listen to what he says. The total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replications, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it or any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the qualities we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Within his worldview, I think Dawkins makes a good point. See, if there is only nature, if everything that exists can be explained by time and chance, then what happens out there and in here is not right or wrong, it is not good or bad, it's just natural. It's just the way the world works. Like apples growing on a tree, like swallows returning for the summer, like viral particles replicating inside the cell of a six-year-old, like tectonic plates colliding and causing a tidal wave. It is just what happens. And so if that is what I believe suffering to be, then my response to it should reflect that, shouldn't it? Instead of feeling a sense of injustice that children under five still die from diarrhoea in many parts of the world... I think this view of the world encourages me at best just to say that's unlucky. It's just nature. The strong survive and the weak don't. That is, after all, how we got here, isn't it? Nature is inherently violent. It is not moral or immoral. It just is. As Dawkins says, there is no evil, no good, no purpose. There is nothing but pitiless indifference. Famine in Ethiopia, in Darfur, in Malawi. A genocide in Rwanda, in Nazi Germany, in the Balkans, in Cambodia, in Iraq. An earthquake in Haiti, in the Philippines, in Nepal. The ache of childlessness, the reality of homelessness, of mental illness. Nothing but pitiless indifference. See, I think my main problem with that argument is that nobody has ever lived as though that is really true. Nobody thinks and feels and acts in this way when they encounter pain. Whoever you are, we do look at pain and injustice and something somewhere makes us feel as though that shouldn't happen. That ought not to happen. And as soon as we start using words like shouldn't and ought not to, we have moved on from the blind physical forces that we ascribe no moral value to not just witnessing their problem either, but if nature is my sole explanation, then where does my motivation to help come from? If nature is it, why put myself in danger to philanthropically help another? It makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> See, a truly indifferent world is a devastating thought for all of us. And so whether we make it up ourselves or we ascribe to someone else's moral system, we do treat suffering as good or bad. Everybody does. We do feel genuine sorrow. We do make claims of injustice. We say things like, that isn't fair. But if my way of explaining the world is just nature, I am not allowed to say that. Because there is no such thing as fair and unfair. C.S. Lewis uh, famously said, My argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust, but how had I got this idea of just and unjust? 
See, simply put, if nature is all there is, I do not think there is a consistently satisfying way of explaining the suffering that we see and encounter. We either have to be very brave and say it's entirely meaningless, as Dawkins does, or we have to ignore the framework that we ascribe to and invent some categories of horror to place pain into. See, getting rid of God, getting rid of God does not make the question of suffering disappear at all. In fact, it makes it an awful lot harder to answer. It makes it a lot harder to live through suffering in a consistent way. With only nature to explain the world by, why do I ask why? If suffering is how I got here, why do I now consider it to be unfair? I'm not allowed to blame something that is not culpable. So, we must admit, I think, as Christians, that we have a problem I think actually the problem is bigger, though, if you get rid of God. Thirdly, then, let's think about what we can say as Christians. See, I think we do have some good answers. And look, with what I'm trying to do uh, tonight and the different things that we're going to think about, I'm not going to be able to go through every individual argument that you will read in the books. Here are some good ones. Um, There is no substitution for just getting a book and reading the summer is coming, so um, pick one. Um, I would like to tell you that I've read all these books. I definitely haven't, especially not the last one by John Frame. Um, it's on my bookshelf. But um, here are some, <laughs> and that's half the battle. If you get it onto your bookshelf, like you believe that some of the words will just kind of <laughs> uh, absorb into your brain as you sleep. But maybe pick one and read it. So look, whether it's the argument of free will, that, it, that, that the necessity of suffering... There has to be suffering for free will to be really free. Or whether it's the argument of knowledge. Just because I can't think of a good reason for suffering to exist doesn't mean there isn't one. Or maybe it's the arguments of pain's benefits. See, the absence of pain in life is actually a terrible thing. See, I think there are lots of arguments. Some of them are very good. But I want us to just go back to that inconsistent idea of a good God. And where I think, as a Christian, the the central answer for us is found. So we said, didn't we, that if God really knew about the suffering in the world, and if God was really good and that he cared, then surely he would come and do something about it. The big claim at the heart of the Christian faith is, of course, that in the person of Jesus Christ, that is exactly what God has done. See, um, people's traditional view of the Christian God might be the dude at the top on the clouds, An old guy with a beard randomly zapping people with misery. And yet if you were to look at the New Testament accounts, what you would see instead is a God presented to the world in the form of a man born in a stable who lived a normal life and at the age of 33 was convicted of crimes he didn't commit, was savagely beaten and crucified on a Roman cross. See, where is God in a world of pain? Absolutely uniquely, Christianity says, well, he's right there in the middle of it. Suffering in the middle of it. See, of course, the Bible says that God made a good world, a perfect world, a world with no suffering as we see today, and that into that world he introduced human beings and gave them the ability to choose between right and wrong. He allowed them to decide how to live. He gave them autonomy. They could choose whether to love or hate, whether to give or to hoard, whether to build and create or to ruin and destroy, in all the ways that we experience human choice today. 
And of course we all know from human experience that each one of us regularly chooses to do the wrong thing. We cannot sit here honestly today and say that we're not the immediate cause of suffering in the people around us. I cause my wife suffering every day through my selfishness. I cause my children to suffer through my failings as a father. I hope you never experience it, but I cause my patients to suffer through my inadequacies as a doctor. Of course, though, my wrong choices don't just end there. See, not only have I chosen to act wrongly on a horizontal plane, but also in relation to God. I've ignored the God who made me and gave me everything. I've acted as if he was not there. The result of human sin on the world has been the breakdown of the whole created order. Um, Sorry, another silly illustration. Um, Ruth uh, has... We used to have an overactive thyroid gland. Your thyroid is something that sits here, and it's often described as the conductor of the body. So it secretes hormones into your bloods that basically um, control all the vital processes of your body. It affects how you digest food. It affects fertility. It affects temperature control. It affects your mood and your sleep cycle. Don't I know it? Um, If your thyroid goes wrong, everything goes wrong. Your control of almost everything is out of kilter. When that happens in its most dramatic form, it's called a thyroid storm, which is exciting. Um, the Bible says that it's the same with sin. If our relationship with the God who made us goes wrong, everything goes wrong. All of life. All of the cosmos turns into a storm that we are responsible for. The suffering that we see lands at our feet. And yet, back to our first idea, God is good and he loves us. That's what the Bible claims. And so, in the person of Jesus, he comes to do something about it. Now, crucifixion is considered to be one of the most horrific ways to die that has ever been conceived in all of human history. Stripped naked, beaten with leather and nails so that chunks of flesh are ripped from your back, often taking ribs with it. Forced to carry the crossbeam outside the city where you were hung from your wrists on a post by the main city road so that everyone could see. In order to breathe, you have to pull yourself up above your shoulders and then with the effort you would sink back down and it would last days. And yet the Gospel writers hardly mention that at all. Instead they focus on what Jesus says. As he is dying on the cross, he says, God, why have you abandoned me? See, here at the very core of the Christian faith, we're shown a God who is willfully substituting himself for the world who rejected him and ruined the world that he made. See, really God should give us what we want. We've effectively told him to leave us alone, and that is what he should do. In fact, actually, if we want to say to God, please come and sort out suffering, we have to be prepared for God to come and sort out me. Because I cause it every day to myriads of people. And yet because of the great, the great love that he has for us, that does not happen. In the person of Jesus, he comes and suffers alongside us and ultimately for us. He's abandoned by his Father so that we don't have to be. It is through the act that Jesus can say one day he'll put everything right again. He'll make all the sad things come untrue. See, where is God in a world full of suffering? Getting rid of him certainly doesn't help answer the question. In fact, it makes it a lot harder. But as you do look at the God of the Bible, we find a God who's not immune from the suffering we endure, but who has experienced it. And experienced it so that one day he can put an end to it forever. The claim is that God really is God. He really does know what's going on. 
He really does have power to change it. And we see that perfectly in the person and work of Jesus, as we see that God really is good. He does care for us and love us. So that's where we've gone. I think we've said, number one, we need to admit as Christians we've got a big problem. The the question of suffering is very hard. Getting rid of God doesn't help. In fact, I think it makes it worse. And then as Christians, I think we do have some good answers, ultimately focused around the person and work of Jesus and the crucifixion. I guess the thing that leads me to say, though, is so what? What difference does that make? Does it help? See, if it's really true, then it should make a difference to us, shouldn't it? As we go through life and encounter suffering. Remember right back at the beginning, I said that I was a Christian because I think the answers, answers satisfy my intellect. But ultimately, more powerfully, I think it's because being a Christian helps when hardship comes along. See, we have this gospel message of a crucified and risen and ascended saviour. We have a belief in a triune, personal, sovereign God. And yet, do those things that we know and believe help? When the world look at us, is it ever in danger of saying, you know those Christians, they really do suffer differently. They do grieve differently. There is something about them that is not like the rest of us. Um, A few years ago, um, I read a book Uh, that was recommended to me, written by a chap called Nicholas Walterstoff, um, called Lament for a Son. Um, His son died um, aged 25 in a climbing accident, and Walterstoff tries to communicate his thoughts and feelings at the time. Um, I, I thought it was a great book. Commenting on his son's death, though, this is what he says. He says, it's the neverness that is so painful. Never again to be here with us. Never to sit with us at the table, never to travel with us, never to laugh with us, never to cry with us, never to embrace us as he leaves for school, never to see his brothers and sisters marry. All the rest of our lives we must live without him. Only our death can stop the pain of his death, a month, a year, five years. With that I could live, but not this forever. As a cloud vanishes and is gone, so he goes down to the grave, does not return. He will never come to his house again. His place will know him no more. And then later in the book, he says this, I did not think of death as a bottomless pit. I did not grieve as one who had no hope. Yet Eric is gone. Here and now he is gone. Now I cannot talk with him. Now I cannot see him. Now I cannot hug him. That is my sorrow. A friend said, remember he is in good hands. I was deeply moved. But that reality does not put Eric back in my hands now. That's my grief. For that grief, what consolation can there be other than having him back? As we start to think about how the gospel helps, I think Walter Stoff makes a really important point. See, he was a Christian, and his son was a Christian, and he had great hope, but his grief was still deep. You can feel it, can't you? Even in such few words. You see, there is a huge difference between grief and hopelessness. There is all the difference in the world between sorrow and hardship and struggle, and hopelessness. And I think, well, I've been told that if we live long enough, we will face hardship and suffering. We will meet people who have faced them and who are going to go through them. As Christians, we're going to struggle with suffering and we're going to grieve when faced with death. There's no point pretending about that, is there? Look, if Ruth or Dante was run over in the street tomorrow, I can't express how I would feel about that. And we must... 
We must not pretend that the gospel is some sort of sticking plaster or a kind of magic carpet that whisks sadness away. But the gospel, although it doesn't eradicate grief or take away the struggle, it does give us hope. Life-changing, heart-filling, soul-reviving hope. And I think that is where our distinctiveness comes from. That is where our answer to this question ultimately comes from. See, only a Christian has such life-affirming hope within them. Only a Christian has the promises and assurances that we find within Scripture. Only a Christian can depend on this all-loving, all-powerful and all-knowing God. It's interesting, isn't it, in the story um, of Lazarus in John 11. I don't know if you've ever noticed it. You all know the story. Uh, Jesus' friend Lazarus has died. He arrives seemingly too late to save him. He is confronted by grieving relatives. He uses this key moment to teach that he is the resurrection and the life. He knows in a matter of minutes he's going to raise Lazarus back to life again. He knows that Martha's tears will disappear and smile will light up her face as she sees Lazarus walk out of the tomb. He knows that's what's about, that is what's about to happen. And yet what does he do first? He weeps. He cries. He's overcome with sadness and emotion when he encounters the death of his friends. His body shakes with sadness and anger. See, being a Christian doesn't take the pain away. Far from it. But it does give us hope. Hope that is found nowhere else. Just as we spend our last 15 minutes together, I want us to look at a couple of uh, Bible verses just to um, underline this. So if you've got eyes on a Bible, if you want to just flick it to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 13. Uh, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Here's my first point I just want to make from 1 Thessalonians. Jesus defeats all suffering. This is very topical. Um, Muhammad Ali obviously just passed away. One of his most famous stories about him um, was from this boxing match called the Rumble in the Jungle between Ali and the big favourite at the time, George Foreman, now of course made famous by his grills. Um, It took place in the middle of the Congo in Africa and it was hot, stiflingly hot. And Ali knew he couldn't outbox the guy. He was the number one in the world. And so he employed some clever tactics. He skipped around the ring for most of the match, inviting Foreman to hit him. He got pummeled round after round. And no one realised what Ali was doing. He was letting Foreman use all his energy in the African heat. When Foreman finally tired near the end of the bout, 
Ali just leaned in and whispered in his ear, is that all you've got? It's fair to say the fight didn't last much longer. See, Foreman was dead on his feet. Ali was still fresh and he put Foreman to the sword and defeated him. See, at the time, Foreman was number one in the boxing world. He was a formidable opponent, but Ali took what he had to offer. Is that all you've got? And walked away victorious. And I think, in a similar way, the Gospel allows us to approach this subject. See, we now, because of Christ and what he's done for us, we can lean into death itself and say, is that all you've got? See, just look at verse 13 and 14 again. Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind. You have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. See, just like Jesus and Walter Stoff, there is an appreciation of the reality of grief in the face of death, but not hopelessness. See, we follow in the footsteps of a resurrected Messiah. And here is our hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And the result, verse 18, therefore, encourage one another with these words. See, it's supposed to be an encouragement to us that through each other's suffering, we bring this message of future resurrection to help each other suffer distinctively. I'm sure you've all heard the story of a guy called John Patton. He was a missionary to the South Sea Islands in the 1800s. Islands at the time which were totally unreached for the gospel, inhabited by cannibals. Inhabited by um, people who would occasionally eat the flesh of their defeated foes, they practiced infanticide and widow sacrifice. And yet, totally convinced of his part in the Great Commission, Patton and his wife went there with the gospel. When planning his trip, people in his home church heard of his plans, and a certain Mr. Dixon, who will forever go down in history, said this, The cannibals! You will be eaten by cannibals! To this Patton replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can can but live and die serving the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. I mean, he must have planned that, you know? Like, you can't just come out with that sort of stuff, you know? Like, this is incredible, isn't it? But he was convinced, wasn't he, of the truth, and so based his whole life on it. We can go and face anything, knowing that the worst that can happen to us is death. And that isn't that bad, after all. Is that all you've got? See, Jesus defeats all suffering. Second Bible chunk that I want us to look at. Romans chapter 8. We've got uh, 10 minutes to look at what's been called the greatest chapter in the whole Bible. So, um, we'll see how that goes. Uh, Romans chapter 8 and go to verse 16. We'll start from verse 16, we'll go to verse 25. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. 
For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. I want to make two points. God will make you persevere through your suffering. And God sovereignly ordains it. This is where we're going to finish. So here's a truth that, with which Paul starts. Verse 16. The Spirit bears witness that we are children of God. See, here's what that means. If we're children of God, we're heirs with Christ. But did you see the qualification? It's there in verse 16 and 17. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Here's what what Paul says. If you're a Christian, God looks on you as his child, one of his own family. And as one of his children, we're awaiting glory. We're waiting for the new creation. Paul calls it here glorification. That is what is in store for the future for all the children of God. Except here there is a qualification, verse 17. If we are children, then we are heirs and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings. So in order to be glorified, Paul says, we must first suffer. Paul seems to say, if you're a Christian and you reject suffering for Christ, then there's no glorification. There is no heaven for you. Suffering is necessary for the Christian. It's not an isolated idea, is it? It's there throughout the whole New Testament. Whoever would come after me must take up his cross and follow me, Mark 8. 2 Timothy 3, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Acts 14, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. But then what else do we know about how God works in the life of a Christian from these verses? Just look. Probably the most famous, some of the most famous verses in the, in the New Testament. Verse 28 For we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. See, if you're a Christian here today, you're justified by Christ. You're made right by him. Your sin is gone and new life has been given to you. And the promise there in verse 30, those whom he justified, he also glorifies. See, God does not lose anyone. Those he called, those he justified, are those he glorifies. The number is the same. Nobody is lost. See, as a Christian, that's one of the greatest truths in the whole Bible. If it was any other way, there is no way I would make it to the end. We sang it last week. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. So here are two ideas that Paul has just given us. God glorifies all those he justifies and that only those that suffer get glorified. So what's the conclusion? The conclusion is that God will see to it that whatever suffering comes your way as a Christian, you will absolutely persevere through it. 
God will sovereignly enable all those who belong to him to come through their suffering and reach glory. See, that's what he's saying here. If you're a Christian, you will suffer. But don't worry, because you are going to make it. God will see to it that you do. He will make you come through your suffering like gold. He will not allow you to be swept away by it. Even if you walk into the jaws of a lion, God's hand on your heart is immovable. See, does that give you hope? I think it should. Whatever suffering comes your way, God will absolutely get you through it. And then I think the second bit here, from 18 to 25, Paul is saying, whatever suffering does come your way, you know what? It's worth it. It's worth it. Verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. When we get to heaven... Our light and momentary afflictions will fade away as we stand before the throne and sing praises to the Lamb. It's worth it. My point here is that God sovereignly ordains suffering. See, where do I get that from? Just look at verse 19 with me. See, the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration. Not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to the gay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. See, a day is coming when, in the future, when all creation will be set free from its current state, its current bondage. Sin has so affected the world that, as verse 22 says, it is groaning. And one day it will be set free. See, it wasn't always like this. We know, don't we, from the beginning of the Bible that the world was very good. But there comes a point in time when it was subjected to futility. Genesis 3 tells us that. God curses the earth. He sees the sin in the garden. One sin. And he does this to the world. See, we do need to move away from thinking about God as a big, kind daddy in the sky who's desperately trying to make good things happen out of all the bads. I remember just after the um, uh, plane attacks on 9-11, there was one of those emails that went round where everyone clicks forward and emails it to their friends. And it was, this, um, it was trying to answer the question of where was God on that morning? What was he doing? And the answer was that, you know, God was very busy. He was all over the place. He was uh, reorganising people's meetings so they weren't in the tower. He was changing people's flight details so they weren't on the right plane. I think it, I assume it came from a, from a good place, but it essentially presented God as this, this slightly impotent guy who was just desperately trying to make the worst happen in a situation he had no real control over, desperately trying to stop the maximum bad happening in a situation that he couldn't stop. Romans 8 says, no way is that the God of the Bible. It is the God of the Bible that subjects this creation to futility. It's important to say that, of course... He is in no way the author of evil. He does not sit on clouds and zap people with tribulations. But often, when bad things come along, the response of the Christian is to say, oh no, no, this isn't, this isn't God's fault. It's got nothing to do with him. I think Genesis 3 and Romans 8 says it's got everything to do with him. He is sovereign over our suffering. He is intimately involved in it. 
Of course, that's hard to get our heads around, but I'll tell you what that does. See, it rescues me from thinking that suffering is meaningless. It rescues me from the pitiless indifference of Dawkins. God does all things for a purpose, the purpose of his own glory and renown. He does all things so that maximum glory is given to him. See, the atheist has suffering as random and pointless, and whether your child or the next child is run over by a bus, it's just a roll of the dice in the cosmic lottery of life, and pretending that that's not the case is a lie. Romans 8 rescues us from that because it says all suffering has a purpose and a meaning. The end of verse 20, in hope. See, suffering is there to show us exactly how terrible sin is and how much we need a saviour to rescue us from it. The suffering and pain that we experience now is not pointless. It produces something incredible. If I take you to the JR with me one day and we're walking through the corridors and you hear a woman scream in pain, it makes all the difference in the world whether that scream comes from the labour wards or the cancer wards. See, pain is not just pain, is it? There is pain in the context of hope that gives birth to life. And then there is pain that brings death. And the whole of creation groans together in the pains of childbirth until now. See, there is coming a day when God will finally stop all the suffering. And a new creation will be made where all his children will stand and praise his glory and grace as they gaze upon his son. And the suffering that we experience now is preparing us for that day. See, does that make us suffer differently and distinctively? Well, I think it should. Knowing that God is behind it and working through it and has a plan for you to bring you out into glory should make a difference to us. No one ever came through horrific suffering and then said they got to know God better in the sunny days. Like Lewis said, suffering is God's megaphone for us. So I think as Christians, that means we shouldn't shrink from our suffering. We shouldn't run away from it. Yes, we acknowledge that it will be hard and difficult and painful, but we have hope in a God who promises, chapter 8, verse 28, that for those who love God, all things, all things, whether that includes leukaemia or widowhood, or taking the gospel to an unreached people, or to no job prospects, or to miscarriage, or to broken bones, or losing your house, all things work together for good. All things See, and that makes me as a Christian face my suffering differently, doesn't it? As I finish, let's just see where we've come. I think we first of all need to admit as Christians that suffering is a hard question and that we've got real problems. I think we need to see, though, that getting rid of God really doesn't help. In fact, it makes it harder. I think there are, in the Gospel of the Lord Jesus, really good answers to the question. And then as we go through life, I think we find, first of all, that Jesus has defeated suffering and death. And that because God ordains it and promises to help us persevere through it, there really is nothing else like Christianity as we face suffering.